dad yet because his wife has not birthed their child. So he doesn't get any root beer floats today, but I'm, I'm very excited. I hope you'll welcome Taylor. Um, he previously served in campus ministry for a number of years as a campus pastor, and I'm excited for what he's going to share with us this morning. So welcome, Taylor. Hello. I The reason I was like kind of fumbling for a second there is I sort of lost my iPad, uh, which has all of my notes on it and would have been bad. Um, maybe I could do this from memory. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but luckily I found it, so we're in okay shape. Home and Foursquare, how are we doing this morning? Good. I Can I just say that I really love worshiping with this community? Uh, thank you. I'm glad I have permission. <laughs> um, I... This community is deeply, deeply refreshing for me. My summers are strange. Uh, I'm working managing WSU's new student orientation, uh, which means 19-hour shifts aren't unfamiliar to me at this point. Uh, sometimes students get concussions, sometimes toilets explode, and we just kind of roll with it. Both of those things happened in one night. Uh, and <laughs> as those things were happening, what I found myself thinking was soon I get to be back worshiping with this family, and it was a deeply, deeply comforting thought. So I want to thank you all for being here. Kale, I want to thank you for helping us worship this morning. We really appreciate it. It's a blessing to our fellowship. As I was getting ready to give this message, Sarah pointed out that today is Father's Day. Uh, yeah, if somebody wants to just run that up here, thank you, Curtis. Uh, <laughs> appreciate it. You're all seeing the process here. It's fun. Uh, Sarah pointed out that today was Father's Day, which struck me because uh, I thought, well, I should probably mention that to some extent. For me, Father's Day is one of those days that I, I recognize it. You know, I send a card. I, I send a gift. My parents live a good ways away, so it kind of comes and goes. And I have a good relationship with, with my dad, which I recognize is not something everyone has. Uh, so you're in a place where today's maybe a little bit of a harder day for you. I won't say that that's something I understand, but I know that this is a community that wants to be with you in that moment and wants to work through that moment with you, whatever that means. So we're really glad you're here. Uh, for me, Father's Day is one of those days that kind of just goes by, but in light of upcoming events, if you've gotten a look at my wife lately, uh, that's going to be changing. Uh, Lord willing, within the next couple weeks, I will meet the prerequisite for uh, celebrating this particular holiday. A lot of people are really into telling me, you're already a dad. And I'm like, okay, that's a human. I'm not debating that point. But I'm okay not being a dad until the kid's actually here. So thank you all for your encouragement. But I'm doing all right. Uh, as I was thinking about preaching today, though, on Father's Day, I started thinking a lot about my kid, who will soon be here in this world. And specifically, I started thinking about how my kid is going to get to know Jesus. Because as any parent in this room is aware, you know that that does not happen automatically. Despite what, what some think about how our culture works, I meet so many international students in my time. I work up on campus, and I'm also getting my master's degree, who think that if you live in the United States, you are a Christian, that those things are just paired. But, but we know that that doesn't happen automatically. So that got me thinking about the different ways in which we help people get to know Jesus, the different ways in which we get to know Jesus. And there are a lot of ways that we explore who our God is and what that means for our life. 
We do it here. At church, we sing songs where we proclaim God's character. We hear teaching from God's word. Some people go and, and they'll pursue graduate degrees and, and theological study and, and end up with, with masters and doctorates and things like that. And that's good and it's useful and it helps people get to know God. On another level, we share testimonies. We make our experience with God have instructive weight. We tell people about our life with our Lord, and, and we hope that they learn something about God through that interaction. And as I was thinking about these different things, I realized there's a common element that runs through all of these points. It's the idea of a story. We hear a lot of stories when we get to know God. In church, we, we read and we hear stories from the Bible. Testimonies are literally just stories of our life with God. Good teachers, even ones teaching in you know fancy seminary programs and whatnot, as I hope you experience someday, tell stories to illustrate their points. I'm a historian, and it makes me so happy when historians actually tell good stories as opposed to just handing you boring details and expecting you to care. You deserve better treatment than that. I apologize if you've been mistreated by a historian. So... <laughs> Somebody always really resonates with that point. Yes, I've been hurt before. Uh, these stories, they're what I want to talk about today. Specifically, I want to talk about the need for each of us to become better and, and more prolific storytellers. People who tell stories more often. Specifically, I want us to become better Bible storytellers. More prolific Bible storytellers. And, and I don't just mean reading the Bible. That's good. But I mean engaging with Scripture. Getting into Scripture in, by knowing it, telling it in a way that transforms our lives and the lives of anyone who is listening. Because telling biblical stories has incredible potential for a lot of reasons. First off, stories compel us we like good stories. As a species, we like good stories. This is why certain TV shows, radio programs, books, what have you, work, and others flop. There's lots of things in, in our culture that bother us about certain kinds of media. You know, some of these more surface-level things, be it sex, violence, ridiculous drama, whatever it is. But that only serves to initially catch the attention of an observer. If there's no depth, if there's no meaningful story, if there's no gripping characters behind all that fluff, the hollow nature of the thing becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly. And we move on from that in search of something more compelling. We want relatable stories. We want moving stories. We want stories that in their own creative fashion help us make sense of the world. And in case you're not aware, Scripture is full of these kinds of stories. And as we learn to present them in their truest, most compelling form, we can get ready to reveal God to those around us in ways that are otherwise impossible. And this, I believe, is a major reason why people follow Jesus. Jesus was a good storyteller. He didn't just communicate bland aphorisms. He didn't just throw things out there 
you know, here's this about the kingdom of God. Go ahead and do something with it. He captivated his audience with carefully woven portrayals of truth. Jesus compelled his audience with stories. Which points to the second merit of biblical storytelling that I want to get at. It has biblical precedent, which is a useful thing for us to consider. If we see it in scripture, we should seriously consider making use of it ourselves. We'll get to how Jesus told stories in just a moment. But first, I want to recognize that even the Old Testament calls God's people to be storytellers. One example of this that gets recorded in Joshua chapter 4. After crossing the Jordan River with God's help, Joshua is instructed to gather 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And Joshua then instructs the Israelites to make a pile out of these stones. Pile them up. We call it a cairn. I love words. A cairn is essentially a pile of stones that acts as a memorial. And this served a very explicit purpose. The Israelites were told that when future generations walked by and saw this pile of stones and asked, what's that pile of stones doing there? They were to tell the story of what God did when he helped the Israelites cross the Jordan. God, through Joshua, instructed his people to tell stories. And I think it's interesting that he didn't give them a script. Sometimes God gives us very, very explicit things, you know, especially when he's speaking to his prophets. Go say this to my people. He wants something very specific getting across. In this moment, they're simply instructed, tell the story of what I did here. God trusted that these people could tell the story of what God did to those they knew and loved in a compelling fashion, specific to that audience, to that individual. And this has not changed. God desires the same thing for us today. And we also know, fast forwarding to the New Testament, that Jesus also appreciated the benefits of telling a good story. We know this from the fact that he constantly used what we refer to as parables. One gospel writer, this is in Matthew, went so far as to say that for at least a time in his ministry, Jesus did not say anything to a gathered crowd without using a parable. Jesus loved these stories and what they could do. Many of us are familiar with this concept of a parable, but for the sake of clarity, I want to just unpack what this is, what this word means. Basically, a parable is a story. It's a story told to communicate a single central point. The best parables, just like any of the best stories that we're familiar with, are told in a way that the audience can readily understand and relate to. So Jesus loves using these parables, but my question as I was digging through Scripture and seeing him use this method again and again and again was why? Why is Jesus so into using these stories? Why wouldn't, you know, as, as some of us who are maybe more logically oriented, we might have appreciated it if Jesus had just said, do this, 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 and this, and you're good. Some of us would have liked our God to have been that straightforward. But instead, he uses these parables often in his ministry. And Jesus was actually asked this question directly at one point. Why do you keep using parables? Jesus' disciples asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? 
Jesus' reply, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Jesus knew that some would receive his message and others would not. He knew that some people would understand his story and others wouldn't. And I want to take a moment here to discuss this piece of, of Jesus' teaching because it's a difficult one to digest and I argue if it's not for a person, it should be. Because to be honest, I have a really hard time section of scripture. I think on this, I, I read what commentaries have to say, and I don't like what I find. I don't like it. It makes me everything from, from sad to angry at times. The fact is, I have to honestly teach the word of God. And it's not just because I'm up here with a microphone, it's because I follow Jesus. Any of us who follow Jesus have to honestly teach the word of God. I don't get to cut off the parts of Jesus' teaching that I don't like because it's more convenient, it's easier to understand, I think it might land better in a particular moment in the frame. I don't get to make that call. So dealing with this passage, what it tells us is that some people will understand the truths of the kingdom of heaven others will not. And this is a sad reality. It's one that we don't have time to fully unpack today. What I will say for now is that I want us to be careful to not make too much of this fact. Some of us, when we hear this, we are tempted to go too far. We start to think about the people around us. People that we know, people that we're close to, or even just people that we see on the street those people that are keeping you up at night with that party that you wish could just be a little bit quieter, whoever it may be, we start thinking about these people and we start deciding on God's behalf who will and won't understand the truths of the kingdom of heaven. And in that moment, we overstep our bounds. Our job is not to decide who does and doesn't get to hear about the kingdom of God. Our job is not to decide who will and won't understand the truths of the kingdom. Our job is to obey the words of Matthew 28, where we are called to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus taught us. That is our job, to speak the truths of the kingdom to all who will listen in a way that they can best understand. Speaking of ways to best communicate that truth of God's kingdom, I want to jump back to our original question. Why did Jesus use parables? Well, historically, I'm an historian, I'm into these things, much of Jesus' society was illiterate. Maybe 10% of Jesus' community could read. So uh, posting scripture around town just wasn't that useful. That wasn't going to reach a large audience. And before we go drawing this really big distinction between Bible times and today, I want to make you aware of a concept that scholars are calling functional illiteracy. 
the idea that people can go about their daily lives without necessarily needing to read. Now, this doesn't mean that people aren't engaging with what we would think of as a book. They're just engaging with it in different ways. Or, in certain parts of the world, there are entire societies where their language hasn't been written down. They live their whole life without the need to read. But more in our context, especially this upcoming generation, has a very different relationship with this than with the exact same material, but coming through a headphone and delivered in the form of an audiobook. This idea of functional illiteracy may change the way that we need to present the truth of God to people moving forward. I just want you to think about that. This idea of illiteracy isn't just something we write off as old. It affects what we do today. But more importantly, Jesus used stories. He used these parables because they work. Stories stick in our heads. We already talked about how stories are compelling. Stories are also sticky. They get in our heads, and they're hard to forget. We are examples of this. I need some help for a second. We'll just do a quick show of hands. How many of you, if, if I asked you to, do you think you could conjure up the basic details of just one of Jesus' parables? Kind of the broad outline of the story. You think, yeah, I could probably put that together. I think that's a reasonable expectation. Now, how many of you, another show of hands, could recite the Levitical instructions for the priestly maintenance of mold in a home, just off the top of your head. Anybody? I'm glad because we are dealing with a little bit of it at our place. So if you could come, I want to make sure we're doing that in the Lord's will and everything, getting rid of it. So Richard, if you want to come talk to me later, we'll figure that out. Uh, you know, only a couple of people put their hands up, and I'm not sure how serious they were being at the moment. But this is what I'm trying to get at. Stories stick with us. We remember them, we pass them on, we find them interesting, and that's why Jesus told stories. He wants all those who would understand the truth of the kingdom of God to not just hear it, but to comprehend it to a level that they could in turn go and spread it. And I love that Jesus told stories. It gives me hope. Because we can all stories. It might be a story from your childhood. It might be the plot of a, of a favorite book or movie. Some of you may be intimately familiar with the story of, there's like this magical deer, maybe it's a fish, where every time you tell the story, this thing just seems to keep growing and growing and growing with every single retelling. The fish just keeps getting bigger. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've told this story many times. More importantly, though, we know the kinds of stories that people around us like. We know what grabs their attention. This ability to know our audience is crucial, and it gets at the third major benefit of telling biblical stories. Because stories overcome barriers to the gospel. By doing so, by overcoming these barriers, stories provide hope to a crucial segment of people who don't know Jesus. Those who think they know what God is all about and what he has to say. Those who think they know who God is. Some of our friends, our family, co-workers, classmates, they have made their decision about what the Bible says. 
they have made their decision about who God is. They've asked questions, and they've come to conclusions in this regard. They think they know who God is and what he has to say about their life. And I'm pretty convinced that no amount of rallies, no amount of inspirational guest speakers, no amount of, of moving worship sessions is going to bring these friends, family members, co-workers, classmates to get to know Jesus. Exactly one thing is going to accomplish that. And it's the movement of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. Only that can break through the lies that have been set up to keep that person from God. And you are, for someone in this world, the best vessel for God's truth to that person. The Spirit speaks clearest through you, the individual that that person already knows and trusts and understands. Let me give you an example of what I mean and kind of tell you what this storytelling can look like a bit. I worked on a college campus as a pastor for uh, what I think of as a long time. When you're 27, I understand that a long time is very, very relative. Five years felt like a long time. I'm still on a college campus, and I still have conversations with people about Jesus. And one day, uh, a friend of mine, another student, came up and, and asked me about a particular sin. And, and you could insert a lot of sins here, but it was one of those that is very much a hot-button issue, is very polarizing, that is still a conversation going on today about how we deal with it in the church. And you could tell in the way that this person asked the question that they were thinking they already knew what I was going to say, but they were just kind of checking which one of a couple categories that I have set up is Taylor going to fit into. And I'm going to be able to tell based on how he answers this question. That was just the vibe I was getting of what was going on here. So I'm asked what I think of this sin, and there were a lot of different ways I could have answered this question, but I felt God kind of poking at me a little bit, and I felt like I was supposed to tell this particular student a story. And so I'm going to relay the story basically as I delivered it to uh, this individual. It's, it's the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And so this is essentially what I said to the student. You know, one day, Jesus was in the temple. And the temple was the biggest deal place in Jewish society. There was nowhere more important. This was the central hub of their entire lives, was the temple. So Jesus is there, and he's teaching. And as was the case, this crowd gathered around him. And the religious leaders of the day, they did not like what Jesus was teaching. It was counter to what they were teaching. It was infringing on their authority and their control over society. So they were very, very interested in discrediting Jesus and making him look bad. Eventually, they were going to get to the point that they would try to execute him. They actually succeed in that, but it didn't quite stick more on that later. Uh, for this moment, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he's got this crowd around him. And the religious leaders of the day, they cook up this plan. What they do is they go out into the town, and they find this woman who is actively participating in the act of adultery, having sex with someone who she's not married to. And they grab this woman from out of the bed, and they drag her to the temple, and they throw her in front of Jesus. And they say, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law that we were given says that we are supposed to stone her. We are supposed to execute her. But we've heard you say that we're supposed to forgive people's sins. What do we do with this woman? And they figure they've got Jesus trapped. On the one hand, if he says, 
yeah, you've got to forgive her. Then they can write him off as he's not teaching the law, he's not a man of God, everybody should stop listening to him, and that crowd's probably going to clear out. On the other hand, if he says, you're right, the law says we have to execute her, go ahead and do that. Then they can write him off as just flip-flopping, you know, he's all about forgiveness in one moment, but the second the rubber hits the road, when he's really called on it, he's just like everybody else. So all of you who are here to have your sins forgiven, he's not the guy for you. Either way, they figured they got Jesus checked. What Jesus does is he kneels down and he starts drawing in the dirt. He starts scribbling. We don't know what he was drawing. There's writing, there's been drawing, we don't know. He does this for a while. And everybody's looking at him, waiting for him to respond. This woman's standing there. We don't even know if she had time to wrap herself in a sheet. Standing there in front of this crowd, totally ashamed, embarrassed. Jesus, after drawing in the dirt for a while, looks up and says, whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Then he goes back to drawing. This hits the crowd pretty heavy. And the older people in the crowd, they leave first. We know the lives that they've led. They know that they are not pure and just, and ultimately it is God's right to judge. They understand the point that Jesus is making, and they leave. Younger people, as younger people tend to be, are a bit more stubborn. I include myself in this number. Uh, they're more set in their ways. They're not willing to accept what Jesus is trying to get at. But after thinking on it for a while, even they, if begrudgingly, get up and leave. And this entire crowd clears out. And it's Jesus and this woman. He looks up, drawing in the dirt, and he says, My daughter, who was left that condemns you? She looks at him and says, No one. Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. But this next part is really important. Now go and leave your life of sin. Because what Jesus understood in this moment was that this situation was disgusting all the way down. These people had cooked up this plot based on how Jewish law worked at the time. There's a decent chance that this woman was actually entrapped, that this was a trap that these guys set up to catch this woman. So it is completely despicable that she is here in front of him. But she was also participating in this act. There was a sin that was committed. And the beautiful thing that happens in this moment is we see that Jesus is able to stand right in the middle and perfectly balance the forgiveness of sin and the need to live a holy life. That's who I follow. One of the big reasons why I follow Jesus is because he is perfectly able to balance those two things. So now we're, we're back here, we're, we're out of kind of this storytelling thing that I was doing. I could have answered this student's question in a lot of different ways. But by telling this story about Jesus, my hope is that they understood that we follow a person. We follow a God who is known. We don't follow this strange list of rules that was sent to us in a listserv one day that we're just expected to walk through in our lives. This is why Jesus came, to make himself known, so that every commandment that we are expected to follow, every time we are expected to repent of a sin, it's not just because we feel like we're supposed to, 
It's because a God who knows us and loves us and has made himself known calls us to do so. And it's that knowledge of Jesus as a person that breaks through the barriers, the lies that have been set up for these friends of ours who think they already know what the Bible says and who God is. These stories cut through that deception. And they inspire us and our friends to think really, really seriously about who Jesus is and what that means for how they're to live. This is how people come to the kingdom of God. They understand that Jesus is someone that they can follow. And they do so. I believe that we want our friends, our families, our co-workers, our classmates to follow Jesus. We want to. And telling stories about our God is a wonderful way to help that process along, to introduce our friends, our family, our coworkers, our classmates to this incredible Lord Jesus. But if we are going to tell these kind of stories, there's a couple things that have to change. First, we have to get rid of this obnoxious idea in our head that we like to tell ourselves that we are not good storytellers. There's all kinds of things wrong with this idea, and it's almost always imperative. It's never just a blanket statement of, I am not a great storyteller. It's, I am not a great storyteller compared to, and then you insert a person there. Maybe it's Pastor Jamie. Whoever you think of that's a good storyteller, and you think, I can't do it as well as that person, so I probably shouldn't bother. Part of that comes from a good place. We want to make sure that our God is represented well, and we wonder if we're really the best people to do it. Well, for some people in this world, you're not only the best person, you might be the only person. You might be the only person following Jesus that another individual trusts enough to really hear when you share one of these stories. So we need to banish the thought that we are not good storytellers. Because it's a relative idea, and frankly, it doesn't matter to what God's trying to accomplish. To some person, you are the best storyteller because of the relationship that God has set up for you to have in that moment. The second thing that needs to change is that we have to stop reading the Bible just for ourselves. We have to stop coming to church just for ourselves. My experience, we often read the Bible like we read it who do you look for when you first open up a yearbook? Yourself. You're flipping through there, trying to find how many times you're in there, because for some reason in high school that validated us as people. Um, I mean, I did it too. I'm, it's my senior yearbook. They swapped my name with a good friend of mine, Stuart Smith. So I'm Stuart Smith forever in my senior yearbook. But we read the Bible the way we read a yearbook. We flip through there and we're trying to find these stories that relate to us, that that touch us, that speak to us where we're at. And that's not necessarily bad. But I don't think it's really going to help our friends get to know Jesus. And we do the same thing in church often. We come here and we seek to grow in our knowledge and experience of God. And again, that's not inherently bad. I just don't think it's really going to help our friends get to know Jesus. 
least not as well as it could. My encouragement today is that you would read the Bible for others. That you would come to church on someone else's behalf. That every time you read scripture, whenever you hear a sermon, think on how what you read or what you heard would help your friend get to know Jesus. Think about how you can take the stories that you read and hear about our God Present them to your friends, your family, your co-workers, your classmates. You are the best mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit when it comes to certain people in your life, when it comes to those close to you. My prayer is that you would listen carefully to the words our God gives you, and that you would speak We're going to close in prayer in just a second here. And it, it, something I've noticed, and, and I've been involved in, in a lot of small churches in, in my time following Jesus, summers are interesting in college towns, and we all know that. Uh, and, and, you know, I hear us talk about how, you know, oh, we just got kind of this, this bunch today, and we, we think about the people who aren't here. I want to encourage us to think about a different group of people who aren't here. Not those who normally gather with us, but those of our friends, our family, our co-workers, our classmates who bought into these lies that they think they know what the Bible says and what God is all about. Those who think they have zero reason to ever set foot in a place like this. I want us to think about those people who aren't here. So as you were praying with me in a moment, which I hope you'll do, I want to ask that you think about who could be filling that seat next to you. And I want you to think about how the Holy Spirit wants you to be the one to tell that person the stories that are going to help them come here and hear about this incredible God of yours. So in closing, I want to ask that you please join me in prayer. Lord God, I am humbled that you would choose us, foibles and all, to be the ones to communicate your truth. God, I am in awe of the fact that you came into this world and made yourself known so that we weren't just handing people a list with some check boxes on it and saying, if you live this way, you'll be honoring God. But instead, you made it about a relationship. You took something that we as a species already love to do, God, tell stories about the people in our lives, and you let us use that tool to tell the world about you. And God, you in turn by your providence has set us up with relationships with people. That you want us to be your mouthpiece in that relationship, Lord. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what we think of as results, God, you call us to be obedient. And I praise you for that gift. That you would give us that opportunity. Lord, I believe you're all powerful and if you wanted to, you could snap your fingers and we'd all be worshiping you. But you want us to choose to love you, God, you know as we know that that's infinitely more meaningful. So I want to ask that today you help us to have a story that we can grow to love from your word that tells people who you are, that reveals your character, God. Give us one of those stories that could become our own. And I pray, Lord, you please give us the boldness, the opportunity to go forth to the people you've given us to love and to share those stories. Give us that opportunity. 
love you, God. I praise you for the fact that we can gather together as a community and worship you. I lift all these things up to you in your son's holy name. Amen. I want to thank you all so much for being here worshiping with me today, and I wish you all a very happy Father's Day. See you soon.